Hello there, and welcome to the Grad Student Coach Podcast. My name is Jed Irvin. This is episode 24, The Art of Reframing. Some number of episodes ago, I optimistically called something a new weekly feature, and then it turned out I wasn't churning out episodes on a weekly basis anyway, but the weekly feature was to highlight a question of the week from my expectation dashboard, one of the tools I have over on my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash gradstudentcoach. And the last few episodes, I've made an excuse each time why I wasn't doing that that week. And I've just come to realize that I can't really do it every episode because there are other things I want to talk about that take up the time. So I'm going to retire the name question of the week and now they will just randomly appear if I don't have anything else to productively use up some time. So always okay to do some experiments to see uh, how things can work best. So that's what I'm doing here. So the way I'm going to burn the next few minutes of your waking hours is to finally come to give a little very brief review of the book that I read or listened to, How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And if this is the first time you're listening, this is a book that I've been meaning to read for a while. I needed to catch up on recent science about uh, how emotions are made because emotions really are a central feature of the model that I coach from. And this book was looking like it was going to pull the rug out from under me uh, because I'd built a lot of my model on top of prior science. And uh, so I was interested to see what was at risk in my worldview. And I listened to the book, and then I had to listen to most of it again uh, because the first time through, I couldn't really map everything I needed to from it to match some of the stuff that I had hooked into the prior model. And after my second listen through, I still couldn't quite get everything out of it. But and I talked to my brother, who I had uh, gotten to read it as well, because he's interested in these things. And we discussed and kind of ironed out some things. And there's still a loose end or two. But I just decided now's the time to talk through it. So the old model of how the brain does its thing was based on this notion of a three-part brain, a triune brain, with the idea that there were three evolutionarily distinct kind of areas of the brain that handled different things. One of these would handle emotions, and one would handle fight or flight, and one would handle the more rational thinking. And a tremendous amount of work and research was focused into those regions. And according to this new book, more recent neuroscience is turning that on its head. And so what she has in her theory of constructed emotions, as she calls it, is the notion that the brain has a unified architecture that lets it carry out all of those functions, the rational thinking, the emotions, the fight or flight, and that all of these processes are concept-driven processes, specifically around something called a goal-based concept. 
Now in the few minutes I have here, I can't really explain any of that in detail, but I'm just gonna touch on a few key points that play into uh, my model. And so one point is that to carry out its job of figuring out what's going on in the moment, the brain carries out thousands of simultaneous predictions where it tries to predict what's going to happen in the next moment and uses some sort of matching process to figure out what the closest prediction is and then to account for any prediction error around that closest prediction. Now the point where anyone's mind should be blown is the notion that the movie in your head that you see, what you sense as being, quote, what's happening out there, unquote, what you're seeing is a simulation, the winning prediction modified by the correction of the mispredicted parts, you're seeing the simulation layer that is being informed by the actual stimulus signal that's made it to that place where you're doing that simulation. So you're not even seeing what's out there. You're seeing your prediction of what's out there just kind of constantly being updated in the moment with the prediction error being accounted for. Now, it did take me a couple of times listening to this to get a grip on what she was really saying there, but it really does explain the notion of people see what they want to see. It refines that to being people see what they predict they will see, where those predictions are informed by statistical learning done in the past. So this would perfectly explain why three different eyewitnesses to a car accident, for example, might all remember the car as being different colors is because that they were actually predicting colors based on prior experience. And this just completely throws a wrench into the notion of eyewitness testimony because it no longer becomes eyewitness testimony, it's really I predicted testimony. So if there wasn't sufficient attention on a particular detail, you might just remember the prediction that you made rather than the uh, corrected prediction. So that's one of the big points. Another point is this notion of affect, where affect is the general feeling of pleasantness or unpleasantness that's driven by the state of your body's biology and what its, as she calls it, body budgeting needs are. And in her theory of constructed emotion, every thought you have is inflected by that affect. There's no escape. The information processing to accomplish the thinking is always going to incorporate your affect. And this, she gives an example of that study where judges in Israel were more likely to find people guilty if they were hearing their case before lunch when they were hungry. And that was just a highly disturbing research finding. But that just means that the hunger put them into a state of negative, unpleasant affect and biased them towards thinking that the person being tried was guilty. The third point I'll mention, just because it's so cool, is that she claims that the body budgeting process where the brain and the body communicate about how many resources the body needs, that is a prediction 
based process as well. And, you know, it is a good point that the brain is basically locked in the skull. It doesn't have a, quote, direct view into what's going on in the body. It's getting signals uh, on these nerves. And the idea is that uh, uh, that rumbling in your tummy when you're hungry, that sensation you have of that happened because you predicted it was going to happen based on what happened the fraction of a second prior. So your brain really is locked in, and it's just this prediction machine that's trying to prime itself for quick action because it has to take a whole lot of actions very quickly, and it's just much more able to do that if it's pre-positioned itself with a whole bunch of options uh, based on these predictions. Just fascinating. So, what are the implications to my story flow model, my model for the underpinnings of social interactions in people, which could include social interactions with yourself? In other words, how you relate to the stories you tell yourself about yourself. Well, there are a good number of facets of this that line up perfectly with my model of things, so I'm not going to bother talking to those, it's more interesting to touch on the ones that chafe against things that I've put forth in this podcast. Probably the biggest one revolves around this notion of emotions and rationality being in kind of competition with each other. They collaborate in the process of making sense of what's going on. But in the old model and the research around the old model, I understood from that science, and also I observed in other people and in myself, that the emotion processing part seemed to happen faster than the rational thinking part, and so seems to have a dominant effect on people's sense-making. This was highlighted in at least two episodes One was called Anchor Management, where I talked about how emotions, strong emotions, can act as anchors that can pull us into believing things are like the past when they aren't really like the past. And this was highly related to another effect that I named called Feelings Frame Fantasy Fit, where the feelings that arise in a situation pose a frame that limits the possible stories that might be churned out by your brain that are more of a construction of the rational part. So the feelings would carve out a little space among the infinite spaces of possibilities, and then the rational brain would fill in a story within that frame. Now, the best way I can make this theory of constructed emotions map to that concept if there is in fact not that more rapid processing, is to leverage the notion that these predictions rely heavily on context. So if I'm predicting something is going to be a certain way, part of that prediction process, a lot of it is going to rely on the context around what's going on, not necessarily the focus. So if I'm remembering somebody and how an interaction went down with them, a lot of how I'm going to remember that and predict about that is going to be based on 
a lot of the circumstantial context around them and around those events, not specifically just them. For example, if I encountered somebody in the past who was wearing a certain fragrance and they behaved badly towards me and I developed a strong enough emotional response in that moment, then later when I encounter somebody else wearing that same fragrance, those negative emotions are going to be pulled in and they're going to bias my interpretation of that person. And that's just an irrelevant piece of context was pulled in, but the brain doesn't know it's irrelevant. It's just grabbing whatever context it can uh, for those future predictions. And the emotions may just act as another piece of context, but one that's more highly favored as being weighty, more important. So that might be how it could achieve its dominating effect. Another thing that I can't position quite as well into this new model is this effect that I call simplicity pressure. It's a name I came up with to describe the at least correlation between strong feelings and a drop in articulate thinking how the stronger we feel about somebody, the shorter the stories we tend to tell about them. This phenomenon is so in my face in the world all the time that I just know it's happening, but I can't fit it into that model very well yet. And the third piece, I actually just figured out how to fit it in. The third piece was this phenomenon where Anger seems to slosh around where if I'm angry at you and I stub my toe and then I interact with you, I'm going to be way more angry at you because of that toe stubbing, even though that has no uh, relation at all to something you may have done with me. Uh, But the anger just kind of comes flying out. It's like we have a well of anger. But what I just realized was If it is the case that prior emotions serve as just another piece of context, and if they are uh, weighted more strongly, that as these predictions are happening on the fly, I mean, you're making many, many predictions per second. Once you start getting angry, that anger that you're experiencing will start reminding you more of other things that had that quality. And so it might bias you towards a sort of conflation problem where you're predicting that both things are happening, or maybe you're kind of metastable. You're you're in this oscillation of not being sure which one is happening, so then all the anger for both of them are in play. Now I'm just thinking out loud, but it's fitting a little better for me at the moment. So I'm going to assess this experience as being that this new material doesn't really dismantle my whole model, but it does leave a few corners of it a little softer in its scientific basis. But I don't feel the need to scrap any major component of my story flow model at this point. So that just leaves me with sharing what the central implication of the book is, and the central implication is 100% in alignment with my coaching principles. Given that everything the brain is doing is based on prediction, and those predictions are derived from 
statistical learning of past events. And since your thinking qualifies as a past event, your past thinking, if you change the way you think about things, you can affect future predictions, meaning you can change the way you respond to things in the future by thinking about them in the present. And this means that we have more agency in what we think than we think we do. We can prime ourselves for better ways of experiencing things in the future. But this also means that we are more responsible for what we think than we think we are. And so that is the perfect segue into today's topic, the art of reframing. And this qualifies as some thought work that we're going to go through together. So what is reframing? Reframing is simply the act of thinking differently about something. This could be thinking differently about something that's happening in this moment, or it can be thinking differently about something that's happened in the past. And to lead us further into this, of course, you guessed it, I need a metaphor. Today's metaphor is the key. And by the key, I mean the kind of key you would use to unlock a door. Did you ever have the experience of looking through a drawer or some old box and finding some old key, and you just become obsessed wondering, what did this open? Where did it go? What was this for? I can't throw this out. This key is going to open up some treasure, and I can't remember what it is, or maybe it was something I inherited, and I become obsessed wondering, what did this open? Well, I'm going to take a particular key, and I'm going to put it in your drawer with the hope that you'll someday find it and use it. Because this key has extra powers. Not only can it open doors, it can also make the doors themselves visible. And the doors that it makes visible are choices. In any given moment, you have choices available in how you think about things, how you think about what's happening right now, or how you think about what's happened in the past. Now, hearing me say this, you might be thinking, this is the most obvious thing in the world. Of course we have choices on how we think about things. We have to decide how to do things all day long. But the kind of choices I'm talking about aren't the kind of choices that affect what you do. It's the choices of thoughts that affect how you feel about what you do. So as an example, let's say you're in your car driving to some destination where you're having some time pressure to get there and you hit a traffic jam, of course you're going to start thinking, what's the best way I can get around this traffic? What's my strategy going to be? But what I'm talking about here is what are the thoughts I'm going to have that are going to lead to the feelings that I'm going to have that's going to affect the quality of my life for the next 10 minutes or hour or day? I'm going to go over two examples of this kind of reframing. 
The first is going to be reframing in the moment. And this example is around obstacles, just like we were talking about. When I was in high school, two of my best friends, John and Pete and I were headed to the Jersey Shore for a trip. And we had chosen to take Pete's car because Pete had a new car that he had bought with his own money, I believe. And it was the nicest car that any of us had. Pontiac Grand Prix, smooth ride, plush interior, the best radio and eight-track tape system. And I think it had something called a four-barrel, whatever that was. I was never much of a motorhead, but Pete was a little bit of one. So there we were, headed to the Jersey Shore in Pete's car with his eight-track tape of the cars looping perpetually through the stereo system. And we're driving down the state road that heads to the beach, and the state road has just one lane in each direction. And this was a busy traffic day. It was probably a Friday. And so Pete liked to drive fast, and pretty much instantaneously he would find himself right behind some car that wanted to go slower. And this would begin a tense period of time where he'd be trying to figure out if he could safely pass the car in front of us without getting into a head-on collision and uh, eventually would find a spot and he'd just go for it and we'd get around the car. And I remembered feeling like, oh, whew, that was that was a close one. You know, hope he doesn't have to pass any other cars. But the way he was driving, we quickly caught up to the next car. And then he was just in the same situation and he, he was kind of looking to pass just as soon as he could. And and it just stressed him out to be trapped behind another car when he wanted to go faster. Whereas for me, I was stressed out by the whole concept of passing. And so we made our way to the beach that way. We passed and passed and passed. And pretty much most of the time, he was behind a car that wanted to go slower. And probably we only made it to the beach about 10 or 15 minutes faster after going through a tremendous amount of stress. So if it was me driving, I just would have gone with the flow of traffic and been fine with getting there 10 or 15 minutes later. So the point of this is that two people in that same situation have different thoughts about what's going on that lead to different feelings which proves that there is more than one way to think about that situation. So with our special key that makes the doors visible, we can now see that we have this choice. Here we find ourselves stuck behind slow traffic. I can think about this in a way that will be frustrating, or I can think about this in a way where I won't get frustrated. And how would I prefer to spend the next hour of my life? And what emotional state would I prefer to be in? Frustrated or not frustrated. Now, another obstacle case that I like to use is being online at a store, being at the end of a long line where you have to wait. It's so frustrating to have to wait, to have to sit there and wait for the line in front of you to make it through so you can accomplish your goal of checking out. The suffering that I'm going through when I'm stuck online is only a function of the fact that I'm attached to moving through that line at a particular rate. Another way to think about that time is as an opportunity to think. Circumstances have 
given me a gift, forcing me to slow down. Maybe I can use this time to feel gratitude about something that went well in my day, or to think about somebody that I haven't talked to in a long while. The possibilities are endless. There are a lot of ways to spend your time in that line that don't involve being frustrated. The key is to be able to unclench that attachment and become attached to something else. So those are reframings you can use in the moment. Now I'll give a couple of examples about reframing the past. I learned a particular flavor of this technique many years ago when I was hanging around with a group of highly skilled practical jokers and we would play tricks on each other and but mostly on other people and we realized that sometimes when you do something that is a mistake that causes yourself grief it's kind of like playing a practical joke on yourself just unintentionally and so we deemed this art form to be the self-annoyance and once we had this concept it became a contest to see who could come up with the best self-annoyance. Now, normally, you would think if something is annoying, you don't want it to happen to you. But we found such incredible humor in some of these things that we would do by accident that it just, that became the focus. And so, instantaneously, if something happened where you made some error that caused all sorts of problems for yourself, all the better because it just raised the bar for the other people. And this business provided some of the best laughs I've ever had in my life. I'm actually laughing just thinking about it now because the more problem that it caused for yourself, the funnier it was. And it didn't matter how bad it was, the amount of humor just more than compensated for any inconvenience. So these bad things just became these great, great stories that I still tell 40 years later. And at this point in my life, I just recognize that it's happening instantly and can instantly appreciate the humor when things go wrong. So to give a few examples of this, Uh, either last episode or the one before that, I talked about how I tried to build a soundproof room for my drums in my garage and spent 14 months trying to do it perfectly, only to realize that after 14 months, I'd only made two of the four walls and decided to quit. And so I had half of a soundproof room, which is not a soundproof room at all. And that was just just a very choice self-annoyance. Uh, Let's see, another one just recently. I shared that my mom had passed away recently and my brother is handling the finances. He needed to take the family trust that my mom had all of her assets in and get a new tax ID from the IRS in order for that trust to be dispensed. And so he went to the IRS website online and went to the form where he needed to fill out some information and there was a slightly ambiguous instruction and since the trust had changed from a revocable trust to an irrevocable trust when my mom passed away he thought he needed to put the name irrevocable 
in the title, uh, not realizing that by doing this, he would trigger a process that would culminate in him getting a letter from the IRS saying that he owed 27 years in back taxes and needed to provide that money in two weeks. And so this is just a thing of beauty because you know there's no way to sort this out easily. <laughs> easily with the IRS. And so he actually sought advice from the lawyer that we were working with. And they said, okay, here's what you do. You send a letter to the IRS explaining what happened and ask them to fix it. Nothing will happen after six weeks. You send another letter. You send the same letter. Uh, nothing will happen after four weeks. You send the same letter. And after about seven or eight times, something will happen. And so just the notion that you could have just this slight miscue on a form online and engage. <laughs> it's just a thing of beauty. <laughs> the fact that you could so simply activate one of the world's largest faceless bureaucracies to just work at odds against you. Oh, wow, that was a good one. And uh, especially since the whole reason we set up the trust was to make all this not be a problem. Oh, just utterly fantastic. Okay, one other example from my one of my mistakes, one of my all-time best mistakes really, was my parents needed to move out of their house and downsize to a smaller place. And they had to dispense some of their furniture to their kids in various places around the country. And so I knew that they might be able to save a little money by using this website. I think it was called, uh, well, I can't even remember what it was called, but it was a website where you could go and put up a moving job and moving companies would bid on it and you could have them bid against each other and get a lower rate. I told my mom about this. She did it. Uh, the company that she chose turned out to be scam artists. Our furniture was stolen. It led to a multi-month drama that culminated in my brother hiring a private investigator in Texas and then my brother having to drive a U-Haul van from California to Texas to meet with the private eye and the criminal who had been convinced to give back the furniture. And we got our furniture back. And it was one of the, it was really worthy of a, of being a movie of the week. And all of that, because I wanted to save my parents maybe 5% on their moving job. So the self-annoyance a very powerful technique to reframe some past disaster as being something that was riotously funny by just extracting, taking the care and the time to extract every bit of humor you possibly can out of it. And then you wind up with this just delicious story to tell later on. Okay, I'm going to pull in a second metaphor here to get us the rest of the way home. So the second metaphor is around a game show called Let's Make a Deal. So in this game show, somebody would have some item and they would have to choose between door number one, door number two, or door number three. They pick a door and they have to exchange what they have for what's behind the door, but they don't know what it is. So the game show Let's Make a Deal, I'm going to rewire that to be Let's Make a Decision. Choose between the doors. First, you need the awareness that there are 
other doors, other ways of thinking about what's going on in the moment. And now that I've given you that magic key, you should be able to do that. So let's think about the doors in the Let's Make a Decision game show. Let's say I failed at something. So typically when I fail at something, I feel really bad about it, and I usually usually would say things like, I'm an effing idiot, uh, I'm worthless, something like that, in the heat of the anger at myself for it. So that's door number one, is beating yourself or beating myself up. Door number two involves being fascinated. Being fascinated by what went wrong. How did I let that get out of control? What did I do wrong? How did that happen? And if it's the 10th time I've made that mistake, it's so fascinating. I've made that 10 times. How could I make the same mistake 10 times? What's going on there? And let's say I got special training to not make the mistake, and I still make the mistake. That is fascinating. What is it about the training Am I trying to learn it that's just not working? That is utterly fascinating that that's happening. Door number three is the, this could be the best thing that ever happened to me door. Because there are some times in your life when you think you've made a huge mistake and it winds up creating a series of events that wind up being really great. It doesn't happen every time, but it might. So that's three different ways of reacting to failing at something, and only one of them is toxic. Okay, let's play another round of let's make a decision. In this round, we're faced with doing a chore. Let's say washing the dishes. So washing the dishes could be considered a boring thing to do and a waste of time. You could be spending your time so much more productively if you didn't have to wash the dang dishes. So what are some alternatives to something being boring. Well, something could be fun, it could be challenging, it could be fascinating. Well, you can think about any mundane chore in those other ways. So let's see, door number two, the fun. Let's see, how can I make a chore fun? Well, you can set up a contest with yourself. I bet I can be done with these dishes in three minutes, 29 seconds, and time yourself. I actually had a job as a dishwasher in a restaurant when I was in college, and we had no automatic dishwasher, and it was a fancy restaurant, a small one, but there were many dishes and plates per setting, so I had to work as hard as I could, as fast as I could. It was the most difficult job I ever had physically, and I came up with all sorts of ways to make that fun. Door number three, challenging. I wonder if I could wash the dishes while standing on one foot. Standing on one foot seems like a silly thing to do, but that's actually an exercise that people have in their workouts to help them maintain balance and work on certain muscles. Actually, I'm going to try that the next time I have to wash dishes. Door number four, fascinating. What could be fascinating about washing the dishes. I wonder how my ancestors did the dishes. How many generations did my family have to go back and they not have a sink and they had to go down to the the creek? Door number five, gratitude. I have dishes. Many people don't. The more time you can spend in gratitude, 
the better your mental health will be. Let's do one a little closer to home for the grad student. Proofreading a paper. Maybe you love doing that, but maybe you don't. Let's say that proofreading a paper is something you find very boring. Door number one is boring. So we have other doors, fun, fascinating, challenging, curiosity, gratitude. Let's try going through some of those. How can you make proofreading a paper fun? How fast can I find three problems? Set a timer. Compete against yourself. Fascinating. What types of errors did I make, and why did I make them? Curiosity. What is it about proofreading that makes it so boring to me? What is it specifically? Is it that I have to sit for so long? Is it that I can't look at my phone? And the gratitude here is easy. You're in grad school. That is a privilege. You've made it a long way. This is a small price to pay for what you're going to get out of this. And there's one more door that's a little more esoteric to talk about, and that is seeing the beauty in things. You heard me use the phrase, a thing of beauty, when I was talking about those self-annoyances. I've noticed that when I'm walking into the office, back in the day when I used to walk into the office, I've noticed that if I just stop any random place and just stare at something small and insignificant, like a little patch of ground or a tree or a car door, I could just stare into that, and with the right frame of mind, I can just find incredible beauty in things that just never catch my attention. Like just any tree, the structure of the tree, the fractals that are embedded in that tree, the incredible mathematical rules that are followed as it unfolds over time, just incredible if you think about it. So seeing beauty around you, that's something you can do. But you can also consider that you can find beauty of a sort in every deliverable you, you create, every piece of work you churn out. There might have been beauty in how you overcame obstacles. You got knocked down seven times and you got back up seven times and you didn't whine about it and you just pressed on, and that was a thing of beauty. Or what you learned. Seeing beauty in something is the ability to see all the different facets of it that can trigger a sense of appreciation of some sort. And to take one step further out the esoteric path, you can consider yourself as a grad student to be an artist. Essentially, you are sculpting your better future self. So I think I can wrap all this up with a few statements. In any moment, you have choices available in how you are thinking about what is happening or what has happened. Carry this new key along with you so that when something comes up, you can remember to actually envision these other doors so that you have a choice and you have the power to choose which door. In any moment, you can choose where to direct your attention.
look for ways to transform boredom into fun. Learn to look at setbacks with fascination and curiosity so that you can extract the most learning from them. Or transform setbacks into humor. Or see new possibilities that resulted from having the setback. What you don't want to do anymore is to take that opportunity to write a negative story about yourself, a toxic story that says, I'm a loser, or I'm not worthy, or I suck. That's a door you don't want to go through anymore. And you don't need to, because you have a choice. And one final very important point here is that if something happens that causes you negative feelings like anger, sadness, grief, those feelings are going to just arise in that moment. And I'm not telling you to avoid those feelings or suppress them or ignore them. Allow your body to process those feelings as close to in the moment as possible. And what does processing those feelings mean? It means to breathe through them. Don't run away from them. Just feel into them, knowing that they're temporary. It will pass. It's a biological process to allow your body to process the chemicals that have been released that are supporting the feeling that you're having. And depending on how intense the feeling is, it might take days, or it might just take hours, or it might just take minutes, or it might just take a moment to process it. But you need to breathe through it. And the more you can hold the space for the feeling and give it your attention, the faster it will move through. And once it's subsided enough, that is when you can choose the door. Do you choose the door to go back through those feelings again? Or do you choose a door that's going to lead to a more productive path for yourself? Choose and choose well, my friends. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Signing off from, if you listened to this and thought it was a total waste of time, then consider it a fine self-annoyance studios. We'll see you next time on The Grad Student Coach. To help me keep this podcast going, you can support it at patreon.com slash gradstudentcoach. There you can access additional resources and join the community to help guide content of future podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter at gradstudycoach.